Well, if you're just joining us in the middle of our series for the first time, then you are in a good spot because today we're going to talk about how to be faithful when it's difficult to be faithful. And to start, I kind of want to talk about why uh, we need to have success in life. I think what we need to have in order to be successful in just life, period. And I think in order to do that, we need to have a plan. We need to have a plan if we're going to be successful in life. And I think this is true for life. I think this is true for our spiritual life. I think we all know this, right? I mean, we're not high. I think we all know that. I think we all know that planning for success is not something that we can take for granted. I think most of us in our lives, if we're going to see some success, we're going to have to have some hard work in order to obtain it, right? Does that make sense? Like, it's not everyone who's born with natural ability who becomes a success overnight, but even those who have natural ability have to make a plan and have to work that plan in order to be successful. Because as you are going through life, you are going to hit what I call roadblocks. You're going to hit what I call potholes. One of the strengths I have as a person, as the way God has wired me, is that I, I can envision what the future could be. I can envision what something could be five years down the road, ten years down the road. And so I kind of know the starting point, I know the starting line, and I know the end result. But my ability to navigate the, and these are the things that we have to do to get there, and navigate the roadblocks that come as, as things happen, as life's challenges come, as opposition comes. I'm not so good at that. As a matter of fact, one of my friends early on said, Brian, I love you, but. Have you ever had a friend that said, Brian, I love you, but. Well, it, it, probably if your name's Brian, that would make sense. But have they ever come alongside you and said, I love you, but. And you're like, oh, no, what is it? This friend came alongside me and said, Brian, I love you, but I want you to know that you need someone in your life who can help you see the potholes that are coming that you don't see and help you make a plan to navigate those potholes, to navigate those roadblocks when they come. A good plan, if you're going to be successful, it's not only how to get from where you are to where you want to be, but it's also how to navigate the problems that will arise when they arise. You have to know how to overcome the roadblocks to avoid failure. Does that make sense? So far I know we're kind of talking like a self-help seminar, but uh, trust me, this makes a little bit more sense as we get a little bit further on. Here's the thing about roadblocks. No one likes to plan for them, do they? It's like creating a will. How many of you are excited if I were to tell you your homework after church today is to go online to our website and download your will and fill it out and make plans for, hey, listen, if I get this disease, this is what's going to happen. I, I think I'd rather do something else, right? I think shoveling snow would actually rank higher than that and tonight and tomorrow we're going to get a chance to test that i think from what we hear from the weather i don't really like to think about the roadblocks that come in life that come on the path to success but it's absolutely necessary the reality is 
No one likes to fail, but if we fail to plan, then you can plan on failing. Um, imagine after you're done shoveling this week, um, you've decided that it's time for a new job. And so you are uh, getting ready for that interview. You want to be successful in that interview. What are some of the things that you need to do to get ready for that interview? Do you have any ideas? What would you do to get ready for a new job interview? What are some of the things you can expect? What do you think? And online, if you are participating online, let us know in chat what you think. And I'm going to ask Josiah on, the, on a bit of spur of the moment to uh, let us know if anybody responds. What do we need to get ready? What are your answers? How would you get ready for a job interview? What would you expect to happen? How can you prepare for success in the job interview? What do you expect will happen? Ah, you better polish up your resume because they're going to ask you about what things. What things will you put on your resume? Will you put your life story? Will you do what recipe websites do when they tell you, this is a famous, you know, favorite recipe of mine that my great, great, great grandmother gave us. And you have to scroll so far down, you think you've gone to another website before you get to the actual recipe. Are you going to put that on your resume? No. What are you going to put on your resume? What are the things that they're going to ask you about your resume? Education. Job experience. What else? Skills, maybe hobbies, depending on whether you have experience or not in that field. They may ask you, what volunteer things have you done in regards to this position that you're applying for? One thing, what, anything online? Any, anything shared different than that? Uh, okay. I like that advice. Uh, the advice was that you should take a shower. I recommend that whether you're not going for a job interview too. Just, you know, um, I, I think that's helpful. Uh, if you're coming to church, I recommend taking a shower. Who knows? Uh, it may be helpful for you to connect in a caring community if you do that. Uh, what else? Practice a possible question. What kind of possible questions do you think would be asked in the interview? What are your strengths and what are your weaknesses? I love too much. <laughs> I love that as an answer. That's free. If you are going for a job interview, try that. Let me know how it goes. What else? Anything else online? Job references. And, of course, you can have those things by uh, presenting those on request or having them right in your resume. And, of course, being on time, maybe even being early. Those are all good things about how to prepare. Josiah, I've got one more. All right, so seek advice from other people in the field. Investigate the company. And I assume, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, for those who are joining us online on our online chat, that what you're talking about is make sure it's a company that you want to work for, that they have a good reputation, that they have a good work culture. Uh, do your homework, right? Uh, and all of those things, you'll get your suit ready. Uh, all of those things, great, great answers. Thank you for sharing them.
But I like what someone said in person where they said, what are your strengths and what are your weaknesses? Because what do you talk about when it's your weaknesses? Some companies are so sneaky these days. I love the fact that they do this if I'm the company hiring. Uh, if I'm the person looking for the job, I'm not so interested in this. But one of the things that they'll ask is, tell us about a failure that happened while you were at your old position, and what did you learn from that, or how did you correct that mistake? I think that's a challenging one. What's a failure from your old job, and what you learned from it? I think that's kind of talking about the weaknesses part of who we are. And let's face it, nobody likes to talk about their failures. The chance, the challenge of that is that it feels embarrassing. It feels like we're, we're overemphasizing where we still need to grow and we don't want to turn up. But let's face it, we don't want to talk about, here's the things where I'm still growing, here's the places where I'm still learning. And that's still true for church. So how do we accommodate for that, that we don't like failure, we don't want to fail, but it's difficult to plan for the roadblocks that come in life, not just when we're looking for a job, but when we're attempting to follow Jesus Christ faithfully. How do we have a plan to be successful and be faithful in following Jesus? No matter what the roadblocks are that come, because that's true for success in all of life, and that's true for success in all of our spiritual life. Here's one way I think you can answer this question. Here's a failure, and here how's you, here's how you overcame it. I think you can learn from the mistakes of others, right? I think you can watch for what is it that they did, where did they fail, what is it that these other people did, how did they succeed, and how do we leverage that? I think that's actually one of the great truths of the Bible, right? I think that's amazing that we get shown not just abstract truths of love one another, but we get to see real people who fail at that. And we get to see real people who succeed at that. We get to compare and contrast the superheroes of the Bible. We can learn from the failures of those who wanted to be faithful. And just like we can learn from the failures of those who, well, they fail in something at their work, or they fail in something in their family, or they fail in something in their relationships, I think we can learn how to avoid failure in faithfully following Jesus. And we can use those lessons to make sure that we're successful. Can I show you that? I'd love to show you two different people, one who failed and one who succeeded in remaining faithful to the Lord. And maybe we'll learn something along the way. Is that of interest? Would you like to take a look at that together? Why don't we do that? If you've got a Bible with you, turn with me in them to Mark chapter 12, starting at the 27th verse. Mark chapter 12, verse 27 says this. You will all fall away. Jesus told them, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. And Peter declared, even if all fall away, I will not. Truly, I tell you, Jesus answered today. Yes, 
tonight before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. Now skip all the way down to verse 66. While Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. You also were with that Nazarene, uh, Jesus, she said. But he denied it. I, I, I don't know or understand what you're talking about, he said, and went out into the entryway. And when the servant girl saw him there, she said again to those standing around, this fellow is one of them. Again, he denied it. After a little while, those standing near said to Peter, Surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. He began to call down curses. And he swore to them, I don't know this man you're talking about. Immediately, the rooster crowed the second time. And then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken to him before the rooster crows twice. You will disown me three times. And he broke down and wept. If there's a greater example of failure, to be faithful to the Lord, I don't know what there is. And this is amazing. I think, just as an aside, I think this is one of the reasons why we know the gospel is true and why we can trust the Bible in all circumstances. Because in every other historical record, history is written by the victors, right? They kind of polish up the person to almost be a saint. And the things that go bad, they're kind of left out of the manuscript, so to speak. But here is Mark. He's not writing a tell-all about Peter. He's not trying to get Peter into trouble. He's writing this for a reason. And he is very clear that Peter fails. And he fails dramatically. This is gargantuan in every way. He doesn't just accidentally fail in other words so let's not sugarcoat this let's not downplay this this is not an accidental failure this is an incredible intentional betrayal of the one that he said he would never betray this is not accidental accidental is when you a friend comes to you and says I want to share this with you and share something personal in their lives, something they're wrestling through, something they're thinking about, something they haven't quite solved the answer to. And you say, hey, thanks for sharing that with me. I'll pray for that. And then you maybe share that with a friend. You know, Steve, he's been thinking through this decision. Uh, I'm praying for him. But you didn't realize that Steve didn't want you to share that. It's not public knowledge. It wasn't your story to tell. 
And so Steve calls you on the phone and says, why did you do that? I didn't want that to be shared. And you're just, oh, I didn't know. I'm ex and you apologize and you want to make it right. And you say, I won't tell anyone else. Uh, thank you for letting me know. I'll let the person I shared it with make sure that they don't share it with other people. Sometimes that happens. That's accidental failure. But this is intentional. I read a story this week in the Christian Post. Saw it on Twitter that in a multi-campus congregation in Florida, a large church, one of the directing elders was fired because they stole $1,000 from the Christmas Eve offering. And after they were caught, they confessed. This, this person confessed. It wasn't the first time. That's intentional. That's intentional betrayal. That's not, I'm struggling with sin, I'm struggling with habitual sin. This is full betrayal. So why would Peter go from, I would never do this, to, I never knew him, and calling down curses on people who tried to bring Jesus up and tried to connect the two of them? How could he get from here to here? How could he go from, I will never deny you, Lord, to I never knew him? I think we see a little bit of how Peter felt because of what was happening to Jesus, starting in verse 43. Just as he was speaking, as Jesus was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, appeared with him was a crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. And going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi, and kissed him. The men seized Jesus and arrested him. And then one of those standing near drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Am I leading a rebellion, said Jesus, that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you, teaching in the temple courts, and you did not arrest me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then everyone deserted him and fled. A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. They took Jesus to the high priest and all of the chief priests, the elders and the teachers of the law came together. Peter followed him at a distance, distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And there he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. And then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days we'll build another not made with hands. 
Yet even then their testimony did not agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses? He asked. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death. Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him and struck him with their fists and said, Prophesy! And the guards took him and beat him. Why would Peter fail in this way after declaring, I will never fail you? I think like every other follower of Jesus at that time, every one of his disciples, they knew what he had said about fulfilling the scriptures that the Son of Man would have to die. But in their hearts, they hoped that that would not be the case. That the Son of Man would come in power now. And that he would restore the kingdom of Israel now. And he would remove all the chains of Roman oppression. That he would cleanse the temple. Not just in a spiritual way, but in a physical way. And now would be the time of God's reckoning. And when the time for the fight came, Jesus gave himself up. One of Jesus' followers swung a sword, taking off the ear of the, high, of the servant of the high priest. His followers are ready to fight for Jesus. And Jesus says, stop. The scriptures must be fulfilled. In essence, what Jesus did was... You've come to arrest me illegally. You've come to put me on trial illegally. You have no charges to bring against me. Take me away. Every one of them fled. And Peter, holding on to all hope, followed. Because maybe when Jesus got into the trial, maybe when Jesus met with the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, the elders, that he would confront them, that he would convince them, and that that would be the time. And it did not go well. And all these events happened, and every one of the religious leaders condemned Jesus to die. And Peter thought it was over. I think he felt trapped his Lord, the one he had invested his life in following for three years, was condemned to death as a blasphemer. And I think the trap that Peter felt he was in was that if Jesus was implicated, then what would happen to him? So he denied his Lord to save his life, just as Jesus said he would. 
That's the failure of being faithful. The sad truth is that this failure can happen to us because there are times in our lives, there's times in my life, there's times in your life where we have failed our promise to remain faithful. We've treated our promise to remain faithful to the Lord like it's a New Year's resolution, right? Where as long as it's convenient and as long as it's going well, then absolutely we're in and we're in at 100%. But when things get hard, we find it hard to remain faithful and we will look for other things to save us. We will look for other things to rescue us so that we don't have to suffer so much that we might lose everything, maybe even our lives. And you know what happens with a New Year's resolution, right? We start off gung-ho, we're hitting the gym on January 2, and we're in with that whole crowd of people, and we're fighting for machines, and we're going to get healthy. And then day 7 comes, and the crowd's still there, and you're like, oh, I don't know if I want to spend an hour trying to get to three machines. I want to get to, you know, five or six machines. This seems like a waste of time. Maybe I'll wait until they're all gone. I'll kind of postpone a little bit. That's good rational thinking. Wait till the other people quit their resolutions, but I'll keep going. I'll be faithful. And then the end of January hits in the Northeast and wherever you may watching and the weather's a little bit awful. And it kind of, it's awful to kind of get in the car 5 a.m. when it's, you know, the numbers start in the negative for temperature. And you kind of think, you know what, maybe I could just, you know, do some stretches from home. And on and on and on that goes until you no longer have the desire to go to the gym. And you think, you know what, I'll just try again next year. It just didn't work for me. Unfortunately, The Bible says that there are not only sheep in God's kingdom, but there are goats. And I think the defining characteristics of goats are that they say to Jesus, what you're asking me to do isn't going to work for me. I ultimately want something else. But if that's how to fail, if Peter is the example of failure, and what does it mean to succeed? Why did Jesus face what happened in the Garden of Gethsemane with his arrest, his accusers, all of that, and willingly go through it? Why did he succeed where Peter failed? I would suggest that it's not because he's the supernatural son of God and drew on something that was not accessible to other believers. I think he intentionally did something that you and I can model and follow. Why did Peter fail? Why did Peter succeed? When we compare the two of them, how they handled the arrest, how they handled the presentation of what was going to happen to Jesus, I think we see how we can succeed at being faithful even when it leads to our own suffering. First off, let me tell you what it's not. Let me show you what success is not. We know what failure is, but let me show you what success is not. Take a look at the Mark, Mark 14, verse 12. 
on the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples, telling them, go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, say to the owner of the house he enters, the teacher asks, where is my guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. The disciples left, went into the city, and found things just as Jesus had told them. And so they prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. And while they were reclining at the table eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were saddened, and one by one they said to him, Surely you don't mean me. It is one of the twelve, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. While they were eating, Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many, he said to them. Truly I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Have you ever thought about world history and thought, what would it have been like to be there? Have you ever thought about what would it have been like to be at a famous battle? What would it have been like to be at the signing of the, the Declaration of, of Independence? What would, it have, what would it have been like to be at the surrender of the Axis powers to the Allied forces? What would that have been like to have been there? I love that kind of question. Where would you like to be? As a matter of fact, um, all of those people who were at the Bills game last night, whoo! I bet you they didn't feel the cold from the start of the game because the Bills just poured it on. That was an awesome display of football. I'm not even a Bills fan, and I loved that they played the way that they did, probably because I don't like the Patriots. But anyways, that's a totally different story. It is something to be there in person, right? To see the game on the screen, to see any football game on the screen, any playoff game, that's way easier. So why do people pay thousands of dollars and be inconvenienced in time and parking and travel and finding your seat and the potential weather and all of those things? Because it is something to be there. And I think the disciples realized what was happening. This heightened moment when Jesus tells them what's going to happen and is celebrating the Passover with them. This is the most amazing worship experience that you could ever be a part of. If I wanted to be at any church service at any time in history, I want to be at this one. Because this is the one where God himself reveals his new plan 
specifically for them and gives them symbols of how he is the fulfillment of the covenant of the Old Testament. His body and his blood, the Passover lamb. At Passover, which we explained last week, he knows he will be betrayed, yet he's still going to offer his life. And there will come a day when they will celebrate together the bread and the cup, the fruit of the the vine, for all eternity. Wow! What a moment of worship. And then... Jesus, the Son of God Himself, gives them the bread and gives them the cup. It's life-changing to be there. Better than any sporting event where your team wins, even if it's the playoffs. But sometimes, sometimes we put too much stock in what a moment can be. Sometimes we misunderstand what events are, what environments are. We mistake them as the end, as the proof, rather than the beginning of something else. What do I mean by that? Christian environments do not make people into faithful Christians. Christian environments, Sunday morning services, joining us online, participating in groups, giving, serving, inviting, do not make you a Christ follower. They're good things. I'm not blaspheming those things in any way. Scripture tells us to give. Scripture tells us to invite, to uh, share the gospel with others. Scripture tells us to not forsake the weekly gathering. Scripture tells us to come together. But they are a means to an end, not the end itself. The proof that you are a follower of Jesus is not based on your attendance and your performance. And Peter took this moment, the heightened, emotional moment that was, this is it, this is where we belong, this is what life should be about, and said, here's the proof that I can make it. Here's the proof that I can be faithful. I think we do this in a lot of other areas of life where we make the moment more important than what comes after the moment. I think some couples do that with their weddings. I think people sometimes prepare their weddings to be just this extravagant uh, moment, and it should be celebrated. It should be something that is a high moment in their lives, but let's face it, it's the first day of the rest of their married lives. And some people focus so much on working on the wedding that they don't focus enough on working on the marriage, right? I think Christians do the same. As I said, I think we mistake that I'm a Christian because I go to church. I even go to church in Rochester. I even go to church when it's cold. I shovel on Sunday morning just so I can get to church. I've seen difficulty with concerts, with conferences that are these incredible moments of worship and teaching and learning and fellowship and discipleship and community building. And then people come back home and they don't know what to do with it and nothing changes from that moment. 
And I see that on Sunday mornings. That people hear, that people worship, and it's a great moment of engaging with the Lord Jesus. And when the service is over, that's when it ends. Because that was the point, that was the proof. And unfortunately, if we rely on that to keep us faithful, then we will fail like Peter did. Christian environments do not make people into faithful followers. So if that's not what makes us faithful, what does? Let me show you. In Mark chapter 14, verse 32. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I, what's the word? Pray. That's interesting. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Jesus said to them. The Son of God said to them, stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. <clears throat> Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once more, he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he, found them, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. I'm part of a podcast uh, called the Crosstalk Podcast. It's part of Crosstalk Global an organization, a nonprofit organization that helps equip uh, biblical communicators around the world so that every culture can hear God's voice. And they were talking about, the team was talking about um, this, the Garden of Gethsemane, and they shared something that I wanted to share with you. They said that um, Haddon Robinson, the famous uh, biblical communicator and instructor of biblical preaching, author of biblical preaching, amazing man who has shaped uh, preachers all around the world. He said this, he observed about this passage, that in the garden, Jesus looks weak, falling apart, and he will never be able to succeed on his journey to the cross. Meanwhile, the disciples look like they have it all together. They're so confident that they're able to grab a few Z's before the excitement begins. 
What's the difference between what Jesus did before the betrayers came with what Peter did? Jesus prayed. I think the answer to being faithful, I know the answer to being faithful, when following Jesus just creates all sorts of problems for us, is gut-wrenching, honest prayer with your Heavenly Father. And Jesus did this before His arrest. He knew it was coming. He was confident it was coming. He had prepared them that this was coming through this wonderful act of worship at the Last Supper, but He still did not want to go through it. And His answer, because He knew what was coming and wondered if there was any other way, was to get away from His disciples and pray those kinds of prayers that you only pray when you're alone. And you say, God, help. God, I can't. God, please change this situation. Notice his language. Abba, Father. The language of close intimacy with someone that he loves deeply. This is gut-wrenching prayer. This is not the public prayer that we say in, in church. And I mean no offense to anyone who reads the King James Bible, but sometimes I boast about or joke about King James prayers. The ones that say, you know, oh Lordeth type prayers. People pray differently when they're in public. People pray differently when they're in a group. This is the kind of prayer that is it is raw, it is emotional, it is Jesus. We see in other texts and stories where he is praying and it's like great drops of blood. Or he's sweating them out. He is praying so intensely that he would be rescued from the cross. And it's because of that intimacy with the Heavenly Father that he gains the Holy Spirit's power to sustain him and support him even when he is condemned to death. And what Peter and the other disciples were doing was trying to stand firm in their own strength. Remembering, this is the moment that we came from. This is the promise that we made, so we're good. We made this declaration then, so we're ready for whatever comes. They relied on their own strength while Jesus relied on God's. So now we know the difference. Now we know the failure. Now we know the success of what it means to be faithful. We need to plan for success. We need to know the obstacles that will come. And the obstacles that will come is that sometimes we will be, we will suffer simply because we follow the Lord. And the question is, Will we plan for that moment when it comes? The secret to planning for those obstacles now is to build intimacy today. To not trust in our attendance, in our faithful service records, or our accomplishments for Jesus. That's our strength. And if we trust in those things, we will fall away as Peter did. But if now we spend time in intimacy with our Heavenly Father, we will have His resources and we will stand tall when the suffering comes. When you leave today, 
What will change for you to build more intimacy with your Heavenly Father? Can I encourage you to do whatever you need to do to spend more time with the Lord, to speak to Him, to listen to Him on your own, to make this a personal decision, to deepen your relationship with Him like we do with those that we love anyways. Don't wait until the storm hits your life. Don't rely on events of the past to keep you stable in the future. Build a deep relationship. The truth of the matter is, is that your Heavenly Father is holding His hand out for you to take it. Will you put your hand in His? Let me pray for you. Jesus, I ask that through your Holy Spirit, you would help us to not trust in the events that we participate in, that we attend, to not trust in the service that we provide to others in the name of Jesus, but that we would know you. Lord, your word says that there will come a time when we will suffer for your name. And the thing that keeps us faithful is not to trust in all that we've done, all that we've accomplished, all that we've attended, but that we know you, that we are close to you. Lord, would you help us to have a relationship with you like Jesus did when he walked this earth? Would you help us to learn from the failure of Peter? That we might not fail, but instead that we might be found faithful as your follower, even when it means suffering, because we're a follower. Lord, would you help us to do whatever it takes to put our hands into your outstretched hands. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.